Well, hey there. My name is Pastor Tim, and you have found my podcast. I currently serve as the pastor of First United Methodist Church of Fort Pierce, Florida, and I'm so grateful to be able to connect with you in this way. This podcast is a collection of my sermons and teachings that I hope you will use to deepen and strengthen your connection with Jesus Christ so that you might go and transform the world around you. So kick back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode. Are y'all ready for the good news? I don't just mean the good news about Jesus. You're probably ready for that too. But I mean the good news about your future. Are you ready? Today is the last sermon in the sermon series called How to Start a Fire. You can celebrate that. Yeah, I'm, I'm done too. I've been done. But over the past three months... <laughs> Past three months, we've been looking at the book of Acts, particularly focusing on elements that were present that allowed the church to spread across the known world like a wildfire. You're ready to not hear that anymore either too, right? <laughs> but much like this sermon series and the book of Acts, a fire can only go on for so long. Every fire eventually meets the end of its little flamey life. Every fire eventually burns out, which is a really good thing in like 99% of the time, right? But when we're talking about the church, when we are talking about the movement of Jesus' mission in the world or, or more close to our home and our hearts, the ministries of our own church, we don't like to watch a fire burn out, do we? But here's even more good news for you. The work of a fire isn't done when it's run its course and burned out. And this is because fire fundamentally changes the landscape that it previously moved through. And particularly, fire is the soil. Now, this is not always the case. Often, often, when a fire is finished burning, the soil that is left behind is left filled with nutrients. And soil that has a high concentration of available nutrients is the perfect place for new growth to occur. It's what we call fertile ground. And this is the case as we approach the end of the book of Acts. Now, as a whole, the, the fire of the Jesus movement is still burning all over the place, even when we get to the end of the book of Acts. But the fire of the ministry of one man in particular is beginning to burn out. You see, the Apostle Paul spent years traveling all over the world, bringing the gospel message of Jesus to cities all over the Roman Empire. He planted and nurtured churches and is generally regarded as the most influential person in Christian history, except for Jesus Christ himself. 
But Paul's work was not done without a fair amount of resistance. On many occasions, mobs or individual citizens would run him out of town or even worse, have him arrested and thrown into jail. Over the course of Paul's ministry, he became infamous and was public enemy number one back in the temple in Jerusalem. The religious court of Israel, whom Paul was once a staunch ally of back when he went by the name Saul, became his greatest enemy. And eventually, Paul came face to face with them. Paul traveled to Jerusalem and was immediately detained and brought up on charges for blaspheming the God of Israel with his gospel of Jesus Christ and his active ministry of convincing other Jewish people to follow Jesus. They charged him and they sentenced him to death, which as it turns out was a broad overstep of their authority because Paul was no ordinary Jew. And so after Paul was convicted and sentenced to death, he appealed to an aspect of his life that he had never before leaned on for influence. Paul revealed to the high council that he himself was a Roman citizen. His name, Saul or Paul of Tarsus, revealed that he came from the Roman province of Cilicia and that his family was part of the very small minority of people in the Roman Empire who actually held citizenship. You see, when Rome annexed territories, those people did not just become Roman citizens with citizenship rights afforded to them. Generally, those persons just became subjects of the empire, ruled over by citizens and authorities of Rome. And Roman citizens had a different set of rules than the rest of the world, especially when it came to criminal proceedings. See, it turned out that the non-citizen Jewish high council had no authority to prosecute Paul. He needed to be handed over to Roman authorities in order for that to occur. And so he was. And Paul, being the bold person that he was, immediately appealed his case to the highest authority, the emperor of Rome, Caesar himself. And so on his way to Rome, Paul climbed the hierarchy of the Roman system, having his case heard before city and regional governors and even before kings, all of them passing him off to the next highest appeals court, so to speak. And after a long and treacherous voyage that included shipwreck and being stranded on an island, Paul arrived at his destination, the capital city of the empire. Rome itself. And this is how he was treated when he got there. It says, when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself 
with the soldier who was guarding him. So Paul travels all the way to Rome to face trial, and what he meets is better than what anyone else would be greeted with, a house, and a house, house arrest, essentially. He's just got a place to live and somebody to stand there and make sure that he doesn't cause any further trouble in the empire while they try to figure out what they're going to do with him. But he's on house arrest. He can't go out and do the activity that he had previously been known for doing. And so Paul's traveling ministry was over. The fire that had driven his life for the past several years was burning out. But Paul knew that his work was not yet done. It was just simply entering into a new season while he awaited his ultimate fate in Rome. And so he continued to do his work. And this is what it says. This is Acts chapter 28, beginning at verse 17. It says, three days later, three days after he gets into his house in Rome, three days later, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. When they had assembled, he said to them, brothers, though I had done nothing wrong against our people or the customs of our ancestors, yet I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. When they had examined me, the Romans wanted to release me because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But when the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to the emperor, even though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and to speak with you, since it is for the sake of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. They replied, we have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken anything evil about you. But we would like to hear from you what you think. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. So Paul pretty much gets right to work in almost the same way that he always did. He just did an alternate version of his ministry. Instead of going to the synagogue to speak with the Jews, he invited them to come to his house to have tea or something. I don't know, right? And the people come to him, they're like, listen, we don't really have anything to say negatively against you, although your movement is being talked negatively about throughout uh, our synagogue here in Rome and everywhere else in the world, but we'd like to give you a chance to explain yourself. And so it goes on. It says, after they had set a day to meet with him, they came to him at his lodgings in great numbers. And from morning until evening, he explained the matter to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And so basically all of these folks who are without a doubt very devout Jewish leaders are willing to hear what Paul has to say. Now, who knows their motives? I'm sure they were mixed. Perhaps some of them wanted to find some information, get Paul to say something that they could use to discredit him. Perhaps they're generally interested or even being prompted by the Holy Spirit to come and find out this new teaching 
that has Jewish folks around the empire up in a tizzy. And so what Paul does is he launches into teaching them about this idea of the kingdom of God and the person of Jesus Christ and how they are absolutely in line with what the law and the prophets teach, which is simply a shorthand way of saying the Hebrew scriptures or your Old Testament. Paul is essentially saying to them that Jesus and the kingdom of God that I preach about are just the fulfillment and the new fruit that are springing up from the soil of the teachings and the story of Israel. The law and the prophets aren't obsolete. We're not trying to replace them, Paul says. Rather, I'm just trying to show you how they all are pointing us to this new thing that God has done and is continuing to do for us through Jesus. This is the hope of Israel. This is the hope of the whole world. Paul says, now it's your time. It's your time to embrace this new thing. Or you can just choose to be stuck in your old way of thinking. Looking at the fire and never seeing what the soil is now trying to grow. And what we'll find out is that both of those things happened. And so it continues on. This is picking up at verse 4. It says, some were convinced by what he had said, while others refused to believe. And so they disagreed with each other. And as they were leaving, Paul made one further statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your ancestors through the prophet Isaiah, go to this people and say, you will indeed listen but never understand. And you will indeed look but never perceive, for this people's heart has grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, and they have shut their eyes, so that they might not look with their eyes and listen with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Paul's words are specifically spoken towards those who refuse to see that God is doing something new here. And he quotes the prophet Isaiah, who strangely and coincidentally spoke out against the unwillingness of Israel to follow the law and the prophets. Isaiah spoke to Israel, calling them to turn back to God after years of lawless idolatry. And now, in an ironic turn, Paul uses this quote against those whose strict adherence to law and their idea of how God works in the world won't allow them to see what is clearly happening of them. And so Paul, just to rub it in as he always did, Let's them know. Let it be known to you then that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles who will listen. It's the ultimate slap in the face. And then he lived there for two whole years at his own expense. And he welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God 
and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And that's how the book of Acts ends. It seems kind of nice. But it didn't end well for Paul. Eventually, Paul was put to death. Tradition tells us that he was beheaded many, many years later, possibly during the reign of the emperor Nero, who persecuted the Christians in Rome. But regardless, what the scriptures have to tell us about Paul is that his work continued in a new way while he was under house arrest. And so while both the the fire of Paul's traveling ministry and the fire, so to speak, of the traditional activity of God in the world through Israel were burning out and coming to an end, both of them provided fertile soil for new fruit to grow. In the wake of Paul's missionary travels, the church spread into what we now see as a global reality. In the wake of Israel's fire burning out, the seedbed for the salvation of the entire world was made available. And those who benefit from this soil on both fronts are those who choose to recognize the potential for the future. Surely there were those who heard that Paul was imprisoned in Rome and thought to themselves, well, that's it, guys. The church is over. Without Paul, we can go on no more. Who will write us snarky letters now? This is how it's always been done. It's always been Paul. We can't go on any farther. Paul goes, he plants the church, and things get rolling. Without him, we are done. But we know that something amazing happened well after Paul stopped planting churches himself. Paul's disciples began planting churches, and their disciples planted churches. Something new occurred because the work of Paul had happened, and because the work of Paul was done. Something new came to this world also because of the work that God had done through the nation of Israel. See, the mission of God came into its worldwide fullness. Those who opposed Paul and the church were sitting around saying, we can't allow this to happen. This goes against how we've always done this thing. And yet here we are today, 2,000 years later, the living fruit of the new soil that was cultivated two millennia ago. But you know, the church in our day and age faces a similar situation, no? We've outlived the golden age of Christianity in the West. We are fading more and more to the sidelines of American and the broader Western culture. Some might say that our fires simply burning out. And maybe that's true. But what have I been saying? Fires create new soil. 
even at the local church level, we are nearly 130 years old. Certainly, this church has had eras of greater influence or greater attendance, at least. This church has had a history of youth groups and all of the things that have always symbolized growth and vitality. And so as we look around and we watch both of these realities, the greater church and culture and our own local church, we simply need to ask ourselves, what is God going to do in this new soil? The fire may have run its course, but we have been continuously given the gift of new soil to grow new fruit new ministries, new ideas on the foundation of what the past has established for us. But our greatest enemy is this, not being able to see the potential, only being able to see what is past. We have an attitude that says that's not how we've ever done it before. We've always done it this way. And that probably worked for a long, long time. And that's wonderful. And we, we celebrate the way that it's always been done because the way that it's always been done is the way that led it us to this point where we are today. And so the question is, are you excited for the way we're going to do it next? Are you excited for what's coming? Are you excited for wherever God is calling First Church to go? For whoever God is calling First Church to be? Are you willing to be the ones who plant the seeds in this new soil? that you may never see the full fruit of? Are you ready to start maybe a new fire that you might never get to warm your hands by? Are you willing to do what we have never done before for the glory of Jesus Christ? Because God is up to something big here. And I, for one, can't wait to see what exactly it is. And I hope that you're all coming with me. Amen? Let's pray. God of the nations, we give you praise and we thank you for who you are calling us to be. We ask that you would continually allow us to, to hear your voice to see what you're doing and to have our hearts warmed by, by the newness that you are instilling here in our soil. God, we pray for our world and we pray for our culture. We pray that although the fire may seem to be burning out, that you would do something new, not only on this corner of Fort Pierce, but throughout the whole world. that churches like us would embrace this new identity 
of, of new soil, the place where the next big thing for Jesus is going to occur. We can just feel it. We know it. We're listening and we are waiting to discern just exactly what that is. So come, Holy Spirit, and speak to us. Speak in us and then speak through us to a world that is hurting. Change our hearts, rearrange our lives so that they reflect more of who you are and less of who we think we're supposed to be. Lord, help us to be a church that makes disciples for the transformation of the world. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen. Amen.